Welcome to this live stream on Jewish LGBTQ Voices, Why We Value the Free Expression of Ideas. My name is David Bernstein, and I am the founder of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values. The JILV supports the freedom of expression and open discourse and opposes cancel culture and the stifling effects of ideology inside and outside the Jewish community. Our goal is to create a movement of Jews across the ideological spectrum who stand up for free speech. The JLV is especially pleased to bring you this forum during Pride Month when we celebrate the great strides the LGBT community has taken in the past five decades. Um, we are really pleased to be able to do this uh, with such leading thinkers on freedom of expression and inside the LGBT community. Um, we really have a star-studded panel today. Um, moderating the discussion is Pamela Perevsky. Uh, Dr. Perevsky is a leading thinker um, on freedom of expression, um, a great moderator, and, uh, um, and our chair of the JILV. So thanks, Pamela, for being with us. Um, our uh, panelists are uh, uh, Jonathan Rausch. Um, perhaps he needs no introduction. He's a uh, senior fellow at the Brookings Institute in the Governance Studies Program. Um, he's also the author of seven books, um, including the forthcoming, The Constitution of Knowledge. I have ordered my advanced copy, and I have to say, um, Jonathan is one of the two people who has probably influenced me the most on my thinking about liberalism. So I couldn't be more pleased that you're with us today, Jonathan. Thank you so much. Thank you. Who's the other? Um, I, I would say Jonathan Haidt. So, yes. Um, the um, the next panelist is Jessica Amami. Um, Jessica is a longtime friend. Um, she is an Iranian-American sociologist and a Jew by choice who is no stranger to controversy um, and has a fascinating personal story. So thank you, Jessica, for being with us. Um, next is uh, Jamie Kerchik. Um, Jamie is a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution. He's the author of The End of Europe, Dictators, Demagogues, and the Coming Dark Age. And he is a columnist at Tablet, and someone I've read a ton of over the years. So thanks so much, Jamie. Thank you. And last but not least, of course, is Blake Clayton. Um, he is the founder of the New Zionist uh, Congress. He is still a student at George Washington University, and he's been published already in the New York Times, Tablet, and Haaretz. So, Blake, thanks a million for being with us. All right. So, uh, thank you all for taking part, and I'm going to turn it over to Pamela to moderate. Great. Thank you, David. Um, I'm really happy to be here, really happy to be with these four amazing people and excited to hear what you all have to say. Um, I'm going to start with you, John, um, and ask you what in your, ex you know, first of all, I want to tell you how excited I am about your book. So I just have to say this, The Constitution of Knowledge is, is already a number one uh, new release and it hasn't even come out yet. So I'm very, very excited about that. Um, your other books have also been fabulous. And uh, a related one is um, Kindly Inquisitors, which was very uh, instrumental in my thinking about uh, liberal science, as you say. Um, so what I'd love to know is um, what in your experience as a Jew and as a member of, or in your case and in all of your cases, uh, a leader uh, in the LGBTQ community makes you value freedom of expression um, in particular 
from the perspective of a Jew and from the perspective of a member of that community? Well, a lot of things. I could go on a long time or I could make it really simple. I'm married to a man and have been now for, wow, 11 years at the end of this month. And that happened because we had our voices as gay people. And that's the only reason it happened. It had to be done by persuasion. There was no other way. And that's also how it was done for the African-American civil rights community. And it was how it was done for women and how it's gonna be done for trans people, at least if we play our cards right. So this is the engine of progress and, and nothing, both as a Jew and as a homosexual, nothing really about the world right now breaks my heart quite as much as seeing so members of my community and see so many members of minority communities turn their back on, on this fundamental value. Um, I'm gonna ask you, Jessica, next, um, the same question. What is it in your experience as a Jew and as a member of and a leader in the LGBTQ community that makes you really value freedom of speech from that perspective? Well, uh, thank you for having me on. I grew up until I was 15 years old in pre-revolutionary Iran and then through the revolution. And then I left for high school to the United States. When I was there in the hubbub coming up to the revolution, everything was reduced to a question of power. So nothing about deliberation. The people who wanted to topple whoever was in charge and get in charge didn't ask questions about what comes afterwards. Everything was power. And I'm seeing a lot of that here today in the way we teach our students and in the way the LGBT community is behaving within itself. So of course, we'll get into that more. And I also worked in the labor movement and saw that there. And examples I can give you are like, um, you know, it doesn't matter that the Palestinian LGBT movement has its headquarters in Haifa and Tel Aviv, where they won't be targeted by the Palestinian authorities as much because they're protected by Israeli law because power. So that is why, that is my answer to what you just asked. Yeah, we'll get back to that for sure. That's a really important uh, thing to talk about. Jamie, uh, first of all, congratulations on that amazing essay in Sapir. Um, and um, tell us, you know, for the same question, I, I don't need yeah. to repeat. I'd love to hear what your perspective is. Well, thank you, Pamela, it's great to see you. Um, so I've just finished writing a book. It's a history of gay Washington from uh, the 1930s to the turn of the century. And I've really come to see very clearly how there is a direct relationship between the progress that gay people have made in this country and the openness and the pluralism and the understanding uh, that gay people have won for themselves through free speech. And if you just look at the real dark ages of when it was in terms of being gay, the 1940s, the 1950s, some of the euphemisms and the terms that I discovered in my research to describe homosexuality, it was an offense too loathsome to be named. That was, uh, as one senator referred to it, in 1942, uh, which is the first outing scandal in, in American history. Um, it was the crime against nature. I mean, they, they couldn't even put a, put a label on homosexuality. It was considered so 
awful. It was the worst possible thing you could be. It was worse than a murderer. Uh, during the Cold War, it was worse than being a communist, was to be a homosexual. And so you had, because it was so shrouded in ignorance, there were no openly gay people at all. Um, it, it lends itself to conspiracy theories. And so there was a very widely prevalent conspiracy theory. Joe McCarthy was one of the leaders in, in spreading it, that gay people were communists uh, and that they were traitors and that they were communists. There was a homosexual international that was the equivalent of the communist international. And so it's over time, once you have extremely brave people coming out of the closet, uh, people like Frank Kameny, for instance, um, only when that starts to happen, do you very slowly start chipping away at the ignorance that the entire society, liberals, progressives, everyone was ignorant about homosexuality. And so it was a very long battle. And if you look at the, um, the, the first Supreme Court case to involve the issue of homosexuality was uh, in 1958, and it concerned the first gay magazine. It was called One. Um, and it wasn't a pornographic magazine at all, but the U.S. Postal Service was refusing to mail it because they considered it obscene. Um, and they won. They won the right to publish and to circulate their magazine through the mail. So that was a free speech case. Uh, you look at the first picket outside the White House in 1965. Uh, clearly, um, it's all these men and women dressed very conservatively in business suits and the women in blouses and heels and they're modeling themselves on the civil rights movement. But that was a major landmark in gay rights history. It's four years before the Stonewall Uprising. Not many people know about that. Um, what, was the, what was the slogan of AIDS activists? It was silence equals death because uh, there was so much ignorance surrounding AIDS and how it was transmitted and how you could get it, uh, that it was leading, people were dying because of the ignorance. Um, and so I, I agree with John. I mean, anyone who looks at the history of gay people in the United States, it's obvious, it's clear that none of the progress that we've seen would have been achievable without free speech. And I worry now that because gay people are culturally dominant, I mean, if you look at every corporation, website, magazine, they're all, you know, tripping over themselves to, uh, you know, show how tolerant and open they are and how much pride they have for the gay community. It wasn't that long ago that gay people were considered, um, uh, you know, beyond the pale and that they should not be allowed to speak. They should not be allowed to demonstrate. Uh, and so it really saddens me now to see, you know, many people in the LGBT community are actually really at the, the front end of the, of the movement now to, to cancel and to shut down the open and free exchange of ideas. I think it's a real betrayal of the gay rights movement actually. That's well, well put. Blake, you have a particularly important perspective as a member of the younger generation, which happens to be the generation sort of pushing the, uh, the silencing of dissent, um, the, the generation that is essentially in, in power culturally. Um, so what's your perspective on the value of, of freedom of expression and, uh, and coming from the perspective of being both Jewish and a member of the LGBTQ community? So it's a really important question. Um, and I have kind of an anecdote to, to preface my answer. Uh, before I published my op-ed in the New York Times uh, in late 2019, 
that kind of uh, detailed explicitly the anti-Semitism that not only I experienced, but that many Jewish college students experience across the country on campus from very liberal, progressive, pro-LGBTQ spaces. Um, it was really hard for me to publish this op-ed. And I think it was hard because as you say, and as so many, uh, as other, other people have said before, that this is supposed to be, you know, a space that markets itself as accepting and tolerant and open um, and free. And yet here I was, you know, a part of this community, an active member of this community for years, terrified to say anything. I mean, I was really terrified. Um, I lost a lot of friends. The majority after it was published, I lost a lot of friends, the majority of, of whom were in the LGBTQ community. Um, I was no longer getting the same invitations um, to the events that I had helped organize or that I was a part of. Uh, and I just felt this overwhelming sense of alienation from the, the queer community. That was really scary for me because uh, I had been so active in it and I had been so proud of my activism within it. But the reason why I pushed play on publishing and the reason why I went forward with it, even sort of having the knowledge that all of this could potentially happen um, was Harvey Milk. And Harvey Milk is uh, obviously an icon in the civil rights movement for, for LGBT people and also a Jew. And I had a poster of him on my wall my sophomore year of college when this opinion piece came out that said, everybody needs to come out. And that was his thing, right? That in order to make gay people more acceptable in society in order to move the needle, everybody needs to come out. People need to come out to their parents, to their grandparents, to their community, to their community members, to their bosses, coworkers, et cetera. Because if people know more gay people, then they will think twice about supporting anti-gay legislation. Then they will think twice about supporting politicians who you know, run a platform that's homophobic or transphobic, et cetera. And so I realized that this, is, this was my second coming out. My first coming out was to my parents as, as a gay man. And now I'm coming out as a proud Jew and a proud Zionist. And if the openness and accepting nature of the queer community can't accept the latter, well, then that's really not my problem because I'm going to focus more on my own individual identity and my own perspective on things. What a, what a great um, parallel to make um, that everyone needs to come out. In fact, it, it makes me think, John, I'd like to ask you about this because you've talked a lot about the, the importance of speaking up and of being known um, and, uh, and, and being honest uh, about one's opinions in, in um, moving the needle on the gay rights movement. Um, it seems like we have a lot to learn from the gay rights movement and the, and the other civil rights movements um, right now not just as Jews, but in protecting liberal society, in in protecting um, dissent and disagreement, and um, and the embrace of different opinions. Right now, it seems like um, we have a, like you said, like we have a, a a closeting problem where where people are afraid to 
first of all, now now that there's so much violence around the world uh, against Jews, people are afraid to be known as Jews. Um, but also, people in our country, in particular, are are afraid to be known as dissenters from what is now being sort of called the woke uh, ideology. John, can you talk about what we can learn from the the uh, gay rights movement and why freedom of expression was so important? in that movement and what we can learn from that now? Well, I can tell you what I think we, we should learn. I don't know that we have learned it or, or will learn it, but that's that we do have a problem with hate speech in this country, but the problem is the hate, not the speech. And trying to deal with hate speech by silencing the speech is like trying to deal with I don't know, global warming, global climate change by breaking all the thermometers. It does not serve the interest of minorities to do that. First, it won't work. You drive the speech underground or actually you have the Streisand effect, which makes it even more prominent. People, trolls, love to be censored. They take that to the bank. It's one of Hitler and Goebbels' fam most favorite tactics is there were hate speech laws in, in Weimar, Germany. They tried to suppress Hitler. He put that on every poster all over the country. Why won't they let you hear Hitler speak? What are they trying to hide? So in the first place, it doesn't work. But in the second place, if the problem is hate, the, the solution to that is to solve the underlying causes of hate, and those are ignorance and fear. People don't wake up every morning in order to hate, typically. I guess, you know, a few people do, but most people don't. But they fear Jews because they believe lies about Jews, that we were cons conspiring against our country, that we had secret cabals to enrich ourselves, that we were corrupt and sinister. You know, we don't need to go on into them. And they're, you know, equivalents of that today. And then they believe that gay people were going to recruit and seduce their children and bring God's wrath down upon our country and betray the United States government to its enemies. Well, if you believe those things about gay people or Jews, you're, you're going to hate us. And the answer to that is to hold those ideas up to the light and show that they're wrong. And that, yes, that takes a little time, but, but censorship and suppression does not hold anything up to light. It really helps the wrong people. Yeah, um, Jamie, can you um, follow up on that? You know, one of the, um, one of the things that you're doing now with, with researching, uh, you know, homosexuality and gay rights and, and the history of gay people in, in Washington, uh, you must have a lot of, of examples of the kinds of um, conspiracy theories, similar to conspiracy theories about Jews that had to be debunked. There's actually a lot of similarity between homophobia and anti-Semitism. Um, and it's both because I think they are, uh, there are conspiratorial aspects to it, right? So anti-Semitism isn't like other forms of racism, which tend to, you know, look down on a particular minority group and say that they are, you know, stupid or, or le lesser than, uh, they're inferior. Um, anti-Semitism sort of, uh, it, it, it um, describes Jews as being crafty and uh, part of sort of an international cabal. They're, they're operating in secret, um, uh, which, is, which is unique, I think, in terms of how uh, it d d describes Jews, except for similarly, as you've seen historically, 
uh, how gay people were described. Uh, and I mentioned earlier, there was uh, 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 this, this notion of a homintern, of a homosexual international. Um, because again, gays are like Jews and they're sort of, they are spread out throughout society. You know, Jews are a diasporic people. There are Jews in all different countries and cities and, and whatnot. And gay people are unique in the sense that they are present in every um, religious group, ethnic group, social class. Uh, and this is something that I found repeatedly in my research is this um, real fear among people and governments uh, that um, gays are everywhere. You know, we don't know what they look like. It's hard to tell who they are, but they're everywhere. They could be a senator. It could be a Republican senator and an African-American porter on a train. You know, it, 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 it uh, transcends all these different social tastes. Um, so that's very similar, actually, uh, at least historically. I think when most people think about homophobia, they think of it more in terms of the religious opposition to gay people. And that's what you hear about more because uh, that's been longstanding. You know, that's millennia of, of biblical teachings. And that, that informs a lot of it. But particularly in, in, in America, um, in, the, in the area, of, in the time span that I've been looking at, which is the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, during the Cold War period, um, it wasn't so much religious opposition uh, you weren't seeing a lot of people quote Leviticus as much. It was more of a kind of conspiratorial fear of gay people. That's very similar to uh, the the conspiratorial fear of of Jews. Yeah, um, and uh, that leads right into the question I have for Jessica. Um, the The thing that you mentioned about power is uh, is really interesting because of course the focus ideologically on on power right now um, coming out of critical ethnic studies and critical race theory um, which sort of targets Jews because Jews are imagined to have unmerited privilege and power um, but in reality what we're looking at is a kind of cultural power that uh, the the current censorious group, has. Um, can you talk about what we can learn from from how successful the uh, LGBTQ community has been um, in in overturning those kinds of conspiratorial ideas? Um, well, I'm so glad that uh, Blake brought up Harvey Milk because what I see happening even in the LGBTQ community is a fracturing of people into a woke faction and a faction that wants to deliberate, especially on the rights of women uh, and the issue of sex versus gender identity. So um, what Harvey Milk did was he humanized gay people to everyone. Like, look, your daughter next door, the daughter of the person next door is gay. Oh, I like her. I didn't know she was gay. What we're doing today is quite the opposite. Um, even within our own community, some of the people who are trans activists are using uh, power dynamics that fracture us and uh, instead of dialoguing with us. Uh, for example, with women who are radical feminists who believe that if a trans person who becomes a woman is allowed into their spaces, 
somehow something's going to happen that's threatening to them. Instead of talking about it, we are talking at each other and viewing ourselves with having different levels of power. So you lose the ability to deliberate if you don't look at all of us as humans, first of all, and we're all in the same political community and we need to be dialoguing with one another. I am afraid the LGBTQ community, a paragon of success is very much in trouble like many other communities. Um, and I see also the Jewish community. I'm so glad again that Blake brought up talk, speaking out and coming out. Um, I got my PhD just a few years ago. Uh, it, I'm on my third career now and I had a lot of difficulty you know, even expressing mildly Zionist views. And the first day, I'll never forget this, the first day I walked into my program, the person who was the postdoc came in and said, oh, who that? They're just a effing Zionist. And, and I just like, it woke me up as to what the next five years was gonna be. So we need to talk, we need to come out and we need to talk and express more of our views, even though you'll get punished. Hmm. I'm sorry if I went on and on. No, no, not at all. And in fact, that's a very, it's a perfect segue to Blake. Um, Blake, obviously you have, along with Isaac De Castro, started this new um, Zionist Congress, right? And um, I'm imagining that, that this organization is um, fundamentally um, uh, based on the idea of dialogue. Um, can you talk about the uh, talk about that organization that that you're founding now, and and what you hope to achieve, and how dialogue is important, and and uh, what you've seen, and what kind of level of um, of uh, acceptance of dialogue and discourse are you seeing among your friends, and particularly Jewish people your age? So. Well, first of all, the, the New Zionist Congress is an organization that my friend Isaac and I launched a couple months ago. And what it seeks to do is revamp a sense of cultural literacy among young Jews. Um, because what we're seeing on campus, what we're seeing at various universities, and especially in progressive spaces, is that many Jews will ascribe and lend their voices to ideologies and movements that are really quite radical and quite damaging um, and to many Jews quite insulting. Um, and we believe that the trend to those camps is happening because there has not been uh, a sufficient education on the history of the Jewish people, the uh, foundations of the state of Israel, the uh, contemporary manifestations of anti-Semitism, who Theodor Herzl was, who Golda Meir was, you know, who Emma Lazarus was, and the list can go on forever. Um, and so we want to reinstall this, this a sense of education that will then transform into advocacy in, in combating these, these, these really worrying trends that I'm sure we're all aware of. Um, in regards to uh, centering dialogue, dialogue is the most important thing in, in Jewish and Zionist circles and always has been. Um, I, you know, got my political education and I always say this, I became interested in politics because of the Shabbat dinner table, because 
you know, sitting, it was a staple in my family that you talked politics. And, you know, the more family members came over, the more intense the conversation would be. And we've had people had to, you know, get up and leave the house because they were so enraged because someone said something they disagreed with. So this is, this is Jewish culture, right? We, you know, it was a horse, it was a mule. This is what we do. Um, And that has really, been, I believe, one of our greatest strengths throughout the centuries and has kept us alive um, because of our emphasis on education and debate and, you know, asking questions and answering questions with other questions. Those are all really central to what I believe our spirit as Jewish people are, which is why I feel like many Jews are, and many, and I'm speaking as a, as a, as a gay Jewish person, um, I was extraordinarily uncomfortable my freshman year of college in in LGBT spaces because I was simply not allowed to ask questions. And look, and I, you know, will be right up front and say and say this, there are many opinions that I hold about the LGBTQ community and about recent trends within our community that I find really worrying, that I find um, very troubling and not what and and they're not what they're selling themselves as as on face value. Um, but if I were to ever say those things in public, I would be, you know, excommunicated even more so than I already am. And that goes directly against not just me as a free thinking person, but also against me as a Jew, because as Jewish people, we don't believe that, you know, words, inquisitive words and curiosity are violence. We believe that they are only stepping stones to more progress and more fairness. Um, and so I think it's, I think you're, you, what, what we're seeing is a divergence where there are many Jews in the same position as I am who want to be involved in these spaces, but who are frustrated and can't see a space for themselves anymore um, because they don't ascribe to woke culture. They don't ascribe to the marriage between civil rights for gay people and a very radical far left worldview. I'm going to ask you a follow up, Blake. Um, in since, by the way, as you probably recognized in the essay that I wrote for Sapir on on critical social justice, you know, critical race theory, it was called critical race theory and the hyper white Jew. Um, the the it sort was of a wonderful essay, by the way. Oh, thank you very much, Blake. The, the imaginary scenario um, of what a uh, an imaginary student might contend with from the time that they open their their welcome packet to the time that they graduate from college, a Jewish student, um, some of that was based on your experience. Can you say a little bit about how this critical social justice paradigm has um, has anti-Semitic elements to it? Of course. Um, so let me give you an example. So there is a organization um, that is popular on many universe at many universities, um, and they have adopted. I'm not sure if all of them have adopted this, but many have adopted uh, this sort of method as to who gets to speak on a certain issue and who does not, and who gets to speak first on a given topic and who does not. 
And it's something called Progressive Stack. And I had not heard of it until I entered my sophomore year of college and I went to this meeting uh, just out of my own curiosity and also because I'm kind of a political masochist. Um, and I was there and essentially how it works is every time an issue is brought to the forefront for discussion or debate, who gets to speak first, who gets to comment first, who gets, their, who gets to lend their voice to the discussion is based entirely on how marginalized you are. So how you know, far down the intersectional pyramid you are, that gives you clearance to the front of the line in terms of who gets to comment. And that kind of threw me because one, it completely obliterates the possibility of meritocracy. I mean, what if we were talking about housing developments? What if we were talking and, and somebody was, uh, you know, a PhD in, in urban development and, and in city planning, and they just happen to have white skin and be straight? Would they, you know, have to be for the fourth or fifth person who speaks behind people who, you know, have more, are more socially marginalized based on their immutable characteristics, but know less about this issue? And what about me? Like, you know, I'm Jewish and gay, where do I fit in? You know, if, if this is all oppression Olympics, which I believe on its face is just really problematic and kind of antithetical to liberal democracy, you know, giving people more access to truth based on things about their identity that they can't change, where do I fit into this? And then it becomes even more problematic when we start dictating who can speak and who cannot and whose words hold weight and whose words do not hold weight. And I think Jews, regardless of their of if they're within the LGBT community or not, um, are experiencing this en masse on college campuses because we don't fit into this worldview. Our own experiences don't, you know, come don't comply uh, uh, with a very uh, dogmatic uh, kind of construction that you're only oppressed or oppressive. And uh, it's really, really a problem. And I feel like your, your, your essay in Sapir did a very nice job of explaining that frustration. Thank you. Um, John, do you want to ask Blake a, a question? I know that you, you have some thoughts about this. Yeah, I just wonder, Blake, in, in your age cohort, your university, your world, do you think that your peers understand the history of free speech, minority rights, um, you know, Frederick Douglass and King and the gay rights struggle, is, does that register with them or do they just simply not know about the importance of, of the free exchange of ideas and protecting dissident views? They don't know, they, they don't think it's relevant. Um, all you have to do is look back at the footage from the Evergreen State College crisis and see what the students were saying. The students who, by complete failure of the administration, by the weakness of the administration and faculty, were saying things like, free speech goes out the window, free speech doesn't matter, you know, if XYZ communities are not being protected. Well, that's kind of a straw man argument that doesn't make any sense. There is a a worldview that is being propagated in the classroom right now by people with PhDs that if you say something that is going to make somebody uncomfortable, that is violence and you can lose your job and you are 
making somebody less safe and you need to be held accountable. And they're on the flip side, the kind of activated student body, you know, who prides themselves on understanding, you know, the history of marginalized communities has very little knowledge of understanding that the way that these marginalized communities got to a better place, you know, including the LGBTQ community, got to a better place was by making people extraordinarily uncomfortable. And the fact that that concept that is enshrined in our constitution and is enshrined, used to be enshrined in academia is not respected even by people who are supposed to be upholding the institution itself is very troubling. And so to answer your question, no, there is no kind of contemplation of, of our history. Jamie, why don't you jump in? Yeah, uh, Blake was saying something that made me want to make a point. He was talking about, you know, people with PhDs teaching these very crazy ideas. And, you know, I don't think I would be exaggerating if I were to say that the past couple of weeks have been uh, probably the most disturbing for many Jews in America, you know, vis-a-vis -vis their, their uh, understanding of themselves as Jews in America. Uh, in terms of the violence that we've seen on the streets, it's kind of a European style anti-Semitism in terms of marauding gangs of, of people attacking random Jews because of violence in the Middle East. That's the kind of thing that I you know, used to write about when I was living in Europe. But I think one of the other things that's so unsettling for Jews is that the anti-Semitism we're seeing is coming from intelligent people. And it's coming from institutions that are um, intellectual, liberal institutions. This isn't the kind of gutter, you know, beer cellar uh, anti-Semitism. It's the anti-Semitism of very well-educated people. And Jews value education. I mean, it's probably the most important value. Secular Jews, you know, whether you're religious or not, um, they value education. And there was a there was an article in Tablet a couple months ago. I, I don't have the title. You could Google it and find it. There, there, there was actually people more likely to be anti. Yeah, they they did. You know, um, they did polling, and they showed that people the more the more educated someone is, the more anti-Semitism, the more anti-Semitic they are. They asked, you know, questions that were sort of anti-Semitic, that, that, that would re reveal someone's anti-Semitic attitudes, and it correlated with higher degrees of education. And similarly, you know, I, I used to live in Germany, and I recall there being a study, um, one of the Jewish organizations, the main Jewish organization, took a sample of all the hate mail that they received, much of which people signed their names to. And they found that people with PhDs that was the highest percentage of people who wrote anti-Semitic hate mail to the main Jewish organization in Germany were people with PhDs. And so I think um, for Jews especially, for Jews especially, this is incredibly unsettling because everything that Jews have believed about themselves, about the cultures that they live in, is that you invest in education, you make sacrifices to educate your children, uh, that the more educated people are, the better they will be. And this has really been collapsing. This, this whole vision that we've constructed as American Jews has been punctured um, over the past couple of years. Uh, and it's just a really terrifying realization to come to. Yeah, I'm gonna ask Jessica to jump in on this too because you're you know, part of the world of academia and um, 
one of the things that that I think is correlated with this anti-Semitism is what's called the affective polarization gap. You know that um, that the more educated a person is, the more likely they are to hold really hostile views toward Republicans. Is actually what it is um, uh, because the more educated a person is, the more likely they are to be left of center and, and farther left of center as they get more educated, if I recall the data. Um, the most, the, the people who are the least accurate in um, understanding Republicans are the most educated. Um, and, and so I think that that's related, that, that the more educated people become, the less curious they become, uh, the less intellectual, intellectually humble it seems um, the more certain, um, and and therefore, uh, it's very difficult to um, uh, to shake conspiracy theories and uh, incorrect ideas. Jessica, what are you seeing in in this realm? Um, thank you for that question. What I'm seeing is a movement. First of all, I think David wrote David Bernstein wrote a great article about how academia becomes sort of like this a uh, wind tunnel. We all uh, admit one another into the same peer-reviewed journals. We hire professors who thinks like us because we're on the hiring committee. So this movement has gone left, 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 all the way left to the point where uh, it's gotten to the level of, of Marxist Marxism, I'd like to say, where you're now hearing the word dismantle. Um, the word dismantle or systemic, I'm not sure people realize what that means when you say systemic. They're, what they're saying now is they being people who espouse to these, or for example, the people that Blake comes across and they may not realize it because they're still young, is when you say dismantle, it means I don't even believe in a liberal system where you can have dialogue. I just want to be in power, you know, and... By power, let me say what I mean by that. I mean, you have power where you have the power where you do what you want to do and others can't oppose you, or you have the power to do, make somebody else do something. So it's very reduc reductive thinking. And it's uh, the object, for example, by setting these rules, what Blake talks about, like if you're black and gay, you talk before someone who's white and gay uh, these are all very dictatorial views that emerge when you throw a dialogue system and liberal system out the window. So I'm very concerned, and I think that the academy, actually high schools and K through 12 is where this should be addressed. So I hope that answers your question, Pamela. Yeah, um, and uh, you're making me think of another uh, Marxist term that we're hearing a lot, which is true democracy. Um, and I don't think that young people who are who are you know spouting these these Marxist terms recognize where they come from. Um, what I'm going to do next is um, with the sort of 15 minutes that we have left, I'm going to ask each of you to um, if you have any questions for for the others. Um, and so if, if any of you has a question right off the top of your head, just jump right in and, and ask it of one of the other panelists. Jamie, go ahead. Um, I, have, 
Yeah, I have, I have a question which all the other panelists can answer. It seems there's sort of a tension between what two, two issues that we've been talking about today. And one is free speech and you should believe in it no matter what. And the term hate speech is not a legal term. It's, it's, it's sort of a, it's, it's, a, it's a very subjective term um, and sort of the free speech absolutist position. And um, the anti-Zionist, anti-Semitic speech that we hear a lot, particularly on college campuses. And so I guess, you know, it's mostly for Blake because he's the one who's been dealing with this the most, but really for everyone on the panel is, you know, how do you see that, that tension between standing up for free speech and dealing with hate speech? And I'll just, you know, a couple months ago, I, I wrote a piece for Tablet about this great new documentary about Ira Glasser, who was for many years the executive director of the ACLU. And, um, you know, he was one of the Jewish figures very much involved in defending the right of Nazis to march in Skokie. Um, and, you know, I think he's a real hero, uh, not just of, of the Jews, but really of, you know, he's a, he's a great American for what he did at the ACLU, which is not, you know, the ACLU is not what it used to be. It's a completely different organization now. Um, but I think he, you know, he, to my mind, really exemplifies that, that sort of, you know, Jewish American um, reverence for the constitution and for free speech and, you know, willing to go so far uh, that he would defend the right of Nazis to speak. And so I'm just curious what other people on the panel um, think about that, that tension. Yeah, and that, that film, by the way, I think is called Mighty Ira, right? It, it's a, um, a fire film, Foundation for the Individual Rights in Education, where I used to work. Great uh, Lukianoff and Nico Perino involved in that. A really great film, highly recommend it. Um, uh, let's have Blake just uh, answer that a little bit. And then, uh, and then John, I'd love to hear you answer that. I know you have a question and then uh, we can just keep, keep sort of, as people call it now, popcorning. Uh, I guess is a verb. What does so, that mean? I popcorn means can describe it. <laughs> popcorn is like popcorn, and then a name, and then that person speaks. Um, so, I invite anybody who is interested to go to a BDS vote on campus one day, or go to a debate over the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, which often is you know wrapped up in being antithetical to free speech or go to any uh, classroom where a Students for Justice in Palestine meeting is, is organizing. And you won't hear, or you will very, very rarely hear policies about the state of Israel being discussed. You will very rarely hear what Zionism is, what Palestinianism is, what uh, the word apartheid means, the facts on the ground, the geopolitical facets of this complex issue you will very rarely hear about actual policies and politics. What you will hear is racist, white supremacist, ethnic cleansing, genocide, Nazi. And so what that language does is it brands anybody who takes issue with this organization and with, these, with this rhetoric as Nazi, white supremacist, baby killers, apartheid enablers. And if we object and say, we're not these things and you're being anti-Semitic by classifying us as these things without second thought, without a dialogue, without a discussion about what you're actually speaking about, 
about without like us sitting together at the table and understanding, you know, where we disagree in our worldviews. You are just branding us with these labels and kicking us out of your organizations and forcing us to resign from student government and unleashing social media mobs against us and hanging eviction notices on our doors. And you're saying that we're infringing upon your free speech? That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Ru professor Ruth Weiss, um, who was a professor emeritus of uh, literature, uh, of Yiddish literature at Harvard, defines anti-Semitism as the political organization against the Jews. It very rarely ever talks about the actual politics of the Jews, the actual politics of the people who are in conflict with the Jews, the actual politics of a society that contains Jews. You mean anti-Zionism? No, anti-Semitism. Uh -huh. What it does is it slaps the Jews with labels that everybody knows are bad mm -hmm. in order to suppress their free speech and push them out of what scholar David Hirsch calls in his book, Contemporary Left Anti-Semitism, the community of the good, right? Mm -hmm. right? And we can't argue. So once we've been branded racist Trump supporter, we're out and we don't have anything left to say. And so mm -hmm. the, the argument that, well, they can't speak, you know, and, and we're, you know, being, uh, hypocritical is is not it doesn't hold water. Yeah, I want John to address this too. Um, also, it it makes me realize, uh, you know, in talking about the IRA uh, definition, the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, some of the pushback on that has been that um, that it is silencing political criticism of of Israel. But as you pointed out, it's not typically political criticism that is discussed, it's, it's, um, it's slander, essentially. Um, but also, there's a, there's a, a, a kind of um, misunderstanding uh, of what it means to say that something is anti-Semitic. It doesn't mean it's illegal, right? I mean, one of the things that, uh, that, that people think that, uh, think we're saying when we say that something is anti-Semitic is that no one should be allowed to say it. And I think we have to make a, a big distinction between what we think people should not be allowed to say and what we can classify as anti-Semitism. Um, in uh, the foreword a long time ago, I think it was 2019, um, Samantha Harris, an attorney who was at the time at FIRE and I was at the time at FIRE, uh, wrote a piece about anti-Semitism being protected speech. The vast majority of anti-Semitic speech is protected speech. And we don't, we're not asking for it to be censored. We're asking for us to be able to say that it is actually anti-Semitic. Um, John, I know you had uh, had some, some thoughts and also some questions. Well, a lot on the table there. Um, it's important to distinguish between anti-Semitic or other anti-minority or other um, illiberal ideas on the one hand, and there's a lot of those. And on the other hand, tactics that can be used by anybody, including people who hold those ideas to, to intimidate others, what's often called canceling. And they require two different kinds of solutions. 
the solution to the the bad ideas, the kind of stuff that um, Blake is talking about, is we've just got to stand up and be heard and refute them. And that's a that's a long battle, but it's a very winnable battle. We've seen it again and again. The answer to the problem of the use of illiberal tactics, this would include things like shouting down, mob attacks, uh, coercion, intimidation, physical threats, of course, which we do see, unfortunately, on the rise. There you need to have communities with strong leadership that will draw some lines and say, you don't do that at this university. Or for that matter, you don't do that on this social media platform. And we haven't seen enough of that. And these two things, unfortunately, the ideologies and the illiberal tactics increasingly coincide. Uh, the, the question you asked, Pamela, you know, it comes up obviously all the time. And that's, so what do you do about hate speech? And the answer is hate speech is the solution to itself because it marginalizes itself over time. This is what we found in the, in the gay rights struggle, the gay marriage struggle, was that uh, the hate speech helped us. It was, it was so angry and so ugly and so dehumanizing that every time they talked about the wickedness, the filth of homosexuals, and every time they showed their hypocrisy claiming, you know, someone who had been married three times and was involved in divorce in adultery saying that we were going to harm marriage because we would not be responsible marital citizens. That was an opportunity to hold that conduct up and compare it with the message we were offering, which was a message about wanting to join a community, being equal as citizens, believing in the values of the Declaration of Independence, wanting to contribute to the military, wanting to have families, raise kids, that stuff helps us. And you know who knew that it was Frank Kameny, who is celebrated right now on, on Google's, Google's homepage. I think the, the greatest gay civil rights leader of the 20th century. And I don't think a lot of people would dispute that. He never called to silence anybody. He was very confrontational when these terrible ideas um, came anywhere near him. But he never called for anyone to be silenced because he understood that the way you defeat this is by showing it up for what it is. And you had a question, I think, that you wanted to pose to somebody on the panel or everybody. On well, I, I feel like we're picking on Blake an awful lot. So, <laughs> But I did have this kind of obvious question that everyone always asks me, but I'm the wrong generation to answer it, which is, so how do those of us who believe in liberal values, including free speech, how do we reach your generation? Don't underestimate what we can learn and what we can understand. There's a really big problem happening in the older Jewish world that thinks that young people, high schoolers and college students and young professionals can't you know, form comprehensive arguments surrounding anti-Zionism and can't form comprehensive arguments surrounding, you know, the Soviet propaganda that we're experiencing on campus. Um, and that the only way to combat it is just by saying, oh no, don't say all those terrible things about Israel. If you only knew how magical my, my cousin's bar mitzvah was on Mount Masada, then, you know, you wouldn't be saying those things. That tactic isn't working anymore. They're not going to be any nicer to us just because we tell them that Israel invented cherry tomatoes. We have to have a strategy that 
uh, actually confronts them ideologically, and that is offensive, not defensive. Blake, that's so brilliant. <laughs> and Jessica, I think you could answer this question too. You are, you know, on campus and 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 you only finished your your doctorate a few years ago. You've been involved in in student in interactions for quite some time. You know, obviously the answer to uh, to to this is not, oh no, we're just victims. You can't say that. You know, so what what is the answer? Uh, it's interesting because I segued from being a PhD candidate into teaching right away. So I kind of got both ends of the power structure, if you will. And I really do think that it's up to people in academia somehow, if they can coalesce and turn the academy into some into something that values liberal education again. I mean, true classic liberal education. I'm not seeing that in the social sciences. Um, you know, and then now the social sciences is trying to influence the other sciences. We're seeing the AMA just uh, put this uh, policy that's like woke. It has a lot of properties that label people. And I worry about uh, the harder sciences being affected by this type of like cookie cutter ideology in terms of what they want to achieve. So I really think it's, we have to get better teachers and different teachers into the schools, into universities. That's where I'm coming from. Hmm. Well, we have, we have three minutes left. I'm, I'm just going to um, follow up on, on something Blake said early on and read this this quote, and I, I want people to hear it from the standpoint of being Jewish and from the standpoint of uh, being a, a proponent of liberal values as opposed to the illiberal ideology that, that we, we see so much of on campus and off right now. And, and so I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna ask you all to, everyone who's hearing this, to, to hear it from wherever you're coming from. Um, it's not just about being gay. Um, here's the quote, you must come out, come out to your parents, come out to your relatives, come out to your friends, if indeed they are your friends, come out to your neighbors, to your fellow workers, to the people who work where you eat and shop, come out only to the people you know and who know you, not to anyone else, but once and for all, break down the myths, destroy the lies and distortions for your sake, for their sake. So I think that's actually a really good call to action to start with for people who are concerned about these issues, Jew Jewish or not, gay or not, um, if we're concerned about the ability to have conversations with each other, we need to come out. We need to say that we are proponents of a liberal pluralist democracy, not an illiberal totalitarian ideology. Um, I'd like to just ask uh, each one of you to say one thing, um, one one piece of advice that, that everybody who is listening can uh, can take home with them, something, some action, some something that, that everyone can do. I'll start with you, Jamie, and then Blake, and then uh, Jessica, and then John. Uh, 
I think uh, reading history is really important. I think too many people today form their political opinions based on what they read on Instagram uh, or Twitter. And actually, you know, picking up a book, you know, like I have a, you know, big, big, thick books uh, uh, that have lots of footnotes and, uh, and a bi bibliography. Um, I think spending more of your time doing that than scrolling through social media, um, you'll be a more informed person and you will understand why um, the open and free expression of ideas is the most important uh, value and uh, right uh, that we have in a, in a free society. Great. Blake? I would have to say that um, being LGBT doesn't confine you to a political space um, and that it is you know, a part of your identity and that's great, but it doesn't define how you have to think about all of the issues of the world. It's not a lens to view every single political argument there is. It's a part of you, but it's totally okay if you diverge from the kind of orthodox LGBTQ community, whether it be because of your Judaism, because of your Zionism, um, or because of your uh, practicality, which might sound a little harsh, but needed to be said. And Jessica. I think that along the lines of what you quoted from Harvey Milk, um, we have to show leadership to make coalitions that will just keep on bringing the message home that, you know, we're, we are here too. We have an oppos opposing viewpoints. We have different thinkers and to just insist that we are going to be heard too. Uh, so otherwise we don't turn into this echo chamber where others are not only, you know, knee-jerk kind of telling you what they think and that's the truth, but they're also telling you what to think and telling you what not to say. So this has got to be, you need leadership, as Jonathan said, to, to really bring home that this is not acceptable. We have to exchange ideas. So that's what I would say. That's great. And John? Well, my two-word piece of advice for anybody is unmute yourself. Mm. People in situations like Blake, where you walk into this room full of activists and they're deeply hostile and they're looking for ways to shut you down, uh, they do not represent the majority in the country. Actually, in the country, they're approximately 8% or on campus. But they're using these tactics to make themselves seem dominant, to make themselves see 10 feet tall, make you feel de demoralized and isolated. And how could we ever prevail? Well, the answer is you can prevail. And the first step is unmute yourself. They can try to silence you, but that they won't succeed if you don't let them. So be heard, be heard. That's perfect. I'm just gonna sum this up and then throw it back to David. So that the takeaways here are, are among all of the things that you've said, some, some things that people can actually act on, read history, be your authentic self, show leadership, unmute yourself, Speak out and speak up. Don't be silent. David, back to you. Thank you so much, Pamela. Thank you to the distinguished panel today. What a great conversation. What a great way to mark Pride Month. Um, stay tuned for our podcast, which come out weekly. Every Wednesday morning, we release a new podcast with a distinguished Jewish 
thinker and liberal who was able to talk about liberalism in society and the importance of it. Um, and on June 29th at 2 p.m. Eastern, we'll be having a live stream forum like today with some very prominent rabbinical uh, leaders talking about the importance of free expression of ideas from orthodox reform conservative perspectives. So um, thank you all for being with us and we'll look forward to seeing you soon.